Episode 27, Some Good Sense About Bible Application Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. I've been itching to talk about this topic for quite some time because there is such a great deal of confusion about it. Many are quite familiar with the idea that uh, what we learn from the Bible should be applied into our lives. There's, of course, uh, good reason to have some idea like that in your head. Uh, Like, for instance, where Jesus says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do as I say? And, um, you know, and now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Uh, James has a passage about uh, faith without deeds is dead or without works, depending on your translation. And so the idea that Christians should be doing things is a very well-founded idea. However, (laughs) when we get to talking about Bible application, that's where things can get a little bit messy uh, in some ways that uh, require some more attention that we might than we might uh, routinely be willing to give to uh, the details of a subject. Uh, I pulled up a couple of quotes here. I uh, just went googling things, actually duck duck going things. Uh, I looked up uh, Bible application, and I found a couple of one-liners that I I find typical of things I hear from time to time. Let me just read those for you. Uh, this one says, "Quote." Application is the goal of all Bible study because, in the end, the Scriptures demand a response and changed lives, end quote. So here they have it as the goal uh, of all Bible study. Okay, and then here's another one, quote, The end result of all Bible study should be the application to life. Remember the Word of God is the seed to be planted in your heart to take root and bear fruit, end quote. So these are a couple of, um, I'm sure, very well-meaning and uh, not without wisdom statements. Uh, However, I think they go too far when they say that application is the goal of it all. Now, what do I mean? Am I saying the Bible is not to be implied? Oh, surely not. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that uh, you lay down this principle and say, oh yeah, the Bible application, that's super important. Well, okay, are you doing the kind of Bible application that God himself would approve of or not? Are you just finding some token, token application of some Bible message, Bible lesson? Or are you 
uh, really taking it to heart and thinking through it as it deserves and giving it all the application that it deserves. Another question, of course, would be, are you uh, looking at uh, everything that the writers would have had in mind, or are you just looking for some application to do? Hey, we checked that one off. We did that one, <laughs> right? And so um, it deserves some careful thought, and that's why I wanted to get into this today. This comes up, I don't know, every couple of weeks in some discussion uh, about the Bible and interpretation of it and all that. And so um, let's just look at a few things. I, I just made myself a few notes here. I'm going off the cuff here. And um, let's just talk about some things. Okay, first of all, you're going to say, okay, Bible application, that's very important. Well, okay, but let's think through what that really means because I can certainly find some exceptions to, uh, to that idea. So let me just give you some, uh, some idea what I'm talking about. Uh, you study the Bible, say it's coming close to Christmas time, you want to do some seasonal study, even though it looks pretty certain that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But um, you want to do some study about that. And so you go through reading the Gospels and you find out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so my question to you is, okay, what's going to be your Bible application of that information? What will you do now in your life? Oh, I see <laughs> Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Therefore, I should blank. Therefore, right away, I'll get busy doing blank. What should it be? Uh, here's another. Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1. I actually uh, copied this into uh, to be able to read it to you. Acts 1 uh, verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. How are you going to apply that? Jesus gave, proof, Jesus gave proofs that he was alive. Okay, and this means what for you? Uh, for your uh, deeds, you should do what? Prove to people that you're alive? Well, I don't think that really uh, is copying what Jesus did. Uh, if literally it's copying, it's certainly not copying for the same reason. Because who cares if you're alive? You weren't dead and resurrected, right? So, uh, okay, big deal. That's no miracle in your case. So how are you going to apply that? Well, it goes on. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, uh, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay. What are you going to do with this one? You know, if you're one of the people who would say uh, the end result of all Bible studies should be the application to life. Okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to move to Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, as he said elsewhere? Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to say, well, no, wait a minute. He said that to his apostles and uh, they actually did obey that and uh, that seems to have settled the matter. They didn't tell all the other Christians to go wait in Jerusalem until uh, this event would happen to them. So this seems to be uh, only to the apostles that he was talking. Well, I think that's actually good reasoning. I hope that you would reason through this passage that same way. 
or, or here's another, that, you know, now this one's tempting because uh, a lot of people might like the idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And um, so, you know, here's a passage promising that to somebody and maybe they want to uh, somehow work themselves into that, but you can't prove this from that, or you can't prove that from this, however way I should say that. Uh, if this has something to do with you, well, okay, suppose you were to put it to the test and go to Jerusalem and just wait. Are you going to have this uh, miraculous spiritual event? And if so, how long would you have to wait for it? Is this promised to you? Well, I don't think that's reasonable since the passage, in the passage, Jesus is speaking and he's speaking to the 11 apostles at that point. He's not addressing this to future generations of believers. So I think you've got, uh, as Ricky Ricardo would say, you got some splaining to do if you want to use this passage for that kind of idea. So uh, also, what about when he tells them, uh, actually a few days prior to this, uh, I believe this is on the day of the Last Supper, and he tells them, oh no, it's on the triumphal entry. He says, go get the colt, you'll find it tied up, and such and such will happen. And if anybody asks, you tell them the Lord needs it. Uh, okay, how do you apply that to your own life? Even if you study it all out and find out which Gospels that story appears in and what are the variations in the story and all that, and say you spent 10 hours doing that, what is the application to your life of this information? I... Hopefully, you are not going to go find cults around town wherever you live. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sure those of you in big cities are always finding cults tied up. But uh, hopefully, you're not going to find them and then take them for Jesus. It's like cults for Jesus or something like that, right? So uh, probably and hopefully, there are not many who would find that sort of, uh, quote, application, end quote, to be a reasonable thing. So what will you do with this information? Uh, so you see uh, already I've given you three or four examples of things that don't really fit this rule that some people uh, have when they consider Bible application. And I'll, I'll read one of these one-liners again. Uh, application is the goal of all Bible study because in the end, scriptures demand a response and change lives. Well, okay, what is your response to Jesus telling them to go get them that colt or to get him that colt? And what is, how does this change your life? So I think what the person's doing here who wrote this one-liner or who said it, um, and I didn't even look up who they are. It doesn't matter. I hear this kind of thing said frequently enough. I think they're overgeneralizing, right? They probably are dealing with a congregation somewhere who, uh, like the rest of everybody on the planet, tends to be cognitive misers and moral misers. That is, they don't spend enough on the quality of their own thinking or on the quality of their own moral lives. And so somebody's trying to say, hey, hey, this is not just for Sunday school. This is for, for living out your life, you know? I'm reminded of the scene from uh, one of my favorite movies, Sergeant York, with Gary Cooper, I think 1942. It was um, a film aimed at uh, getting more Americans to support uh, World War II in its early uh, years. And um, in the movie, 
Pastor Pyle, now this is based on real life uh, people, uh, Pastor Pyle uh, tells Alvin York that something like, Alvin, you've got, um, like you've got real religion and not just the Sunday go to meeting religion, this kind of idea. So Alvin's actually, and of course Alvin is sitting teaching the Bible stories to young kids when the pastor um, sees him or says this about him. And so, uh, again, there's the idea, well, some's just for listening and some's actually for doing. Well, to Alvin, it was about doing. He wanted to put it into practice. So, okay, I get all that. But uh, aren't you overgeneralizing? Because a lot of the Bible is just information that uh, there's really nothing you can do about. You know, what are you going to do with instructions about how to build Noah's Ark? Or with instructions about the um, Jewish rituals or the instructions about the manna and picking that up when they were out in the desert for all those years. What does this, how does this change your life? Well, I would hope that you could reasonably admit, well, actually, no, that doesn't change my life at all. <laughs> Some people may get rather uh, chimerical here or chimerical, uh, they may get ethereal and go off, oh, well, I read that story about the manna, and oh, it just changes my life so much, and it makes me see that God always provides manna for me now, in every situation, so like they're going metaphorical here, right? Uh, and And all I have to do is just pick it up. Well, okay, and so how are you going to, quote, pick up the manna, end quote, when it comes to your flat tire that you just got on your car today? And then the silence is them thinking, uh, well, you just have to uh, believe and claim the promises. Uh, okay, which promise are we claiming? Uh, I never read about a flat tire in the Bible. Oh, well, let's, you know, and then they just go searching for some answer to give. When actually the flat tire is uh, not exactly a spiritual problem, is it? It's just an everyday uh, problem with physics and uh, real world, you know, machinery, things like that. So uh, uh, people can get, I think, uh, sort of hyper spiritual in their thinking about things that uh, just aren't like that. So, uh, so anyway, <laughs> where were we? Uh, with Bible application, one of the things, I'm sure I'll mention this later, a lot of times, and not always, mind you, but I do see some abuses. Somebody will read some passage and say, well, see, brothers and sisters, we need to apply this. And then they'll suggest some application that is narrower in scope than uh, God might be thinking needs to happen. You know, if a preacher wants some certain thing for his congregation, hey, we're having a special, you know, bring your neighbor day next Sunday, and I want everybody to go out and invite 100 people, um, he may find himself some passage in the Bible about, I don't know, maybe the cast your nets on the other side of the boat. You know, in other words, don't quit fishing, keep fishing. And then try to apply that to going over to, you know, get a bunch of people for next Sunday. Well, is that why that story's in the Bible? 
or is it in the Bible? Because that's a thing that really happened one day, and there was a real boat and real fishermen and a real net and real fish. And uh, this thing happened, you see. And so somebody can go sermonizing off of this and um, end up teaching the congregation to not really pay attention to the details and not learn more about it, but just the rush to application. Well, there may be, uh, it may be that something good could be learned from that if you're actually still in examination mode rather than just the rush to application. But I do see applicational abuses also. Uh, For example, when you're reading along in Acts, um, is it Acts 5 or 6, and you find out about the widow's list? Well, what should be your application for that? You know, they were taking care of the widows among them, seeing that they were included in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so <laughs> what will be your application of that? Because I know an awful lot of churches that don't have a widow's list. And even so, uh, these are churches, uh, many of whom will say similar things about the need for Bible application. So how well does this process work? Because why don't you have a widow's list? Is that passage not in your Bible? You see, well, we was, must have missed that one, bro. <laughs> or, well, we didn't really, we prayed about it, but we didn't really feel like the Holy Spirit was leading us to do that. Oh, okay, I see. So, so now you don't really want to apply the scripture that you read, even though you certainly, could you not, have a widow's list at your own church and take care of the widows? Oh, well, bro, you got to understand it's a different uh, sociological situation than what it was back then. Oh, really? Do you know that? Uh, and I'm not saying that's not true if somebody wants to take that, uh, that position. But what I want to say is, really, you studied that out, really? And so you came to this determination. You're telling me that there were a bunch of people in your congregation that are like, hey, bro, when can we apply this? We want to have a widow's list. And you're like, no, no, the elders and I all got together. And we studied it out and realized that, no, what they were doing can't be done today. This should not apply to us, right? Really? You did that? You see. When you read that they met at Solomon's colonnade, there in Acts, what's your application of that? Do you move your church to Jerusalem to meet there? Or do you try to find some other uh, public uh, you know, governmental type building to meet in. Uh, of course, the colonnade, as I understand it, was a stables for all his horses, or for many of his horses. Do you go meet in a stable? Yeah, how do you apply this? Or is it really the case that, well, we talk about application a lot, but we don't really mean it a lot, you see? And I think this is a very common problem. People do not make very good observers of themselves. They don't realize how often they're being inconsistent in their reasoning and in their um, application of things. Uh, It's very easy to find a reason to, quote, justify, end quote, or, uh, or another word that's often misused, rationalize. 
things which uh, the reasoning to which is neither just nor rational. So justified is really a bad word to use there, and so is rationalizing. But people frequently do this, and if you can't be consistent, then what's the point of doing it at all? And I'll just stop right here and throw in this bonus thing. Uh, put yourself on Facebook and somebody comes in and says, well, uh, look at those uh, demublicans, <laughs> whichever party you want to pick on, and look how um, illogical it is that they call for A and yet they deny B, which is practically the same as A, right? You'll find this kind of discussion uh, frequently. Oh, they support this, and yet they don't support that, right? And this is a common complaint. And so, uh, so they're pointing out inconsistencies in the other side and uh, people that are their opponents, and yet they don't realize that they have the same kind of inconsistency themselves when they do things. There's a great quote by Dan Gilbert when it comes to the reflective mind and understanding what you're like as a person. Uh, and it, it says, if you're like most people, then like most people, you don't know you're like most people. And that is to say, we can see common failures in others and yet not realize that we're doing this ourselves. And so we get this reputation among ourselves. We tell ourselves, oh, I'm a Bible application guy. <laughs> Maybe even get a, a vanity plate for your car you know, BBL, APPL or something, and people are supposed to figure out Bible application. Yeah, that's me. And, uh, you know, who knows? But the point is that uh, you can be really uh, heavy-handed with one insistence that we do this, and yet in another case, you don't have a widow's list, really, bro? <laughs> right? Okay, so um, here's another one. First uh, Corinthians seven, and this will harken back a bit to a uh, an episode we did prior on what all has changed since the first century. Uh, so think about this. I'm going to read this passage. This is First uh, Corinthians seven, twenty five through oh thirty five. This is a bunch. All right, so the, the, I'm, maybe I'm going to fire hose you here with this. Uh, now concerning the betrothed, and that is me breaking in here, uh, that is, people who are pledged to be married. I have no command from the Lord. Now, this is Paul writing. But I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, this passage is difficult for people because they're like, wait a minute, I thought Paul was inspired and all that, and yet here he is, seems to be talking on his own. Is that even okay? And it really uh, calls to question our understanding of the model of what it meant to be an apostle. And uh, I'm not going to get into that can of worms at this time, but I w merely wanted to mention that that's an issue here. So he's saying, look, if you're betrothed, I don't have a command coming from God, but he was going to give his own judgment in the matter. Which, and even that is very interesting. Why does Paul feel authorized to give his own judgment in the matter? Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Is this an excess of power by Paul? Is he cheating? I don't think so. I don't see any reason to... Uh, to assume that, but he goes on. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, 
we're going to go on and see he's saying if you're single, remain single. But this present distress or this present crisis, another uh, translation might say, hmm, something was going on there, and he said it's better to stay single if you're already single. Uh, do not seek, are, are you bound to a wife? Now, this is to betrothed people. So he's saying, do you, do you already have this promise? Well, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to read further in this passage, I don't think, because it just goes on and on about the same thing. They're having some manner of crisis. He's like, look, even marriage, mm, I'm not sure you should be doing that at this time. So my question is, well, how are you going to apply this today? Now, you should know that some churches have, uh, at least on occasion, applied this and encouraged their members not to marry. But uh, is this for the same reasons as Paul wrote it in the first place? What was the present crisis that they were undergoing? Something's going on, at least in Corinth. So what was that? Apparently it was a big enough thing that Paul thought that uh, marriage should not be in its normal uh, business-as-usual kind of status. In fact, he does go on. Um, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings for it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Well, holy cow. I mean, here he is talking about some really serious, heavy-hitting uh, stuff. And this sure sounds like he's saying, look, we think the end is imminent. Now, I know that opens a huge can of worms. But my question to you, how are you going to apply this? Are, do people in your church get married? Or are they encouraged not to get married? And if they are encouraged not to get married, is it on account of this? Do you think that the, um, the appointed time has grown very short? He goes on later, he says, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So he doesn't want them to be divided in this way, their attention, uh, that is. And so I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So they're in some sort of crisis here. And my question again is, how are you going to apply this? Are you, are you going to say, wow, we better not get married either. I mean, unless you really have to, or, you know, uh, you know, Paul was talking earlier. I think I skipped that part about, look, if you don't feel like you've got self-control, you go ahead and get married. But if you can keep your head together, uh, it's better not to do it. Well, uh, question. If Paul were here today, we could question, question him about this and say, okay, does this still stand in your opinion, Paul, or would you not say this to us today? But how are you going to do this? 
because what if you want to get married and uh, do you want your uh, church, you know, pastor, elders, preacher, whatever you have, do you want them teaching this passage or would you rather them explain it away? Oh, something was going on then, but I'm sure it was over quickly. Right. <laughs> so um, I think a lot of churches don't know what to make of this. And so doesn't that put you in some sort of application crisis if you don't know what to make of this passage? How are we going to apply it, bro? Oh, I don't know. Let's move on to the next passage, right? And so if application is indeed the end of all good Bible study, as some would say, well, what do you do in a situation like this one? I want to go on. There's a few examples from 1 Corinthians, by the way. Um, 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to read you one that's exceedingly controversial today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in the middle of 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn... Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. Uh, now, I'll admit right off the bat that there are people who will look into the language of this and maybe have some insight here and there as to what kind of speaking, perhaps, or, or whatever else. But my question still stands. How are you going to apply this passage? Uh, it is counterculture at this point. Uh, in America today, this would be taken by a great many people as some chauvinistic uh, thing that's grossly outdated. Uh, some would go so far, and I've heard a Bible scholar that I listen to often say, the wall, oh, you know, God, and I don't want to mischaracterize this, uh, God uh, dealt with people all along, uh, even when the people had some crazy uh, notions from their own cultures that they grew up in. And God didn't fix those notions. He just gave them the gospel and told them how to preach it. And so I don't know what he would say about this passage, but basically the idea is, well, okay, um, some of the Bible people were pretty dumb and uneducated in some ways and sort of backwoods and didn't know any better. And God just sort of let that be and went on and gave them the main parts of the message anyway so that the gospel could spread. Well. Okay, and of course, a per person then might look at this passage and say, well, see, we know better today. Uh, women, uh, there's no reason they shouldn't speak in the churches or you know, teach or have authority over man, these other passages that come up. There's no reason we know better. They didn't know better back then. Since then, though, uh, we figured it out. And so we're basically just going to not apply this passage at all. Well, okay, let's go back to the original idea that the end of all good Bible study is application. Then are you cheating, if, if you hold to that paradigm, are you cheating here to not apply this? And of course, how can you apply this differently from what Paul said? Oh yeah, bro, we applied at our church uh, where the, we have uh, four women pastors. Uh, well, isn't that like contradicting this passage? Well, yeah, that's how we apply it. <laughs> you see, that makes no sense at all. That's not an application at all. That's like a, you know, we refuse to do it. We disobey it. We 
write it off as silly or ignorant, right? And so I realize a lot of this is problematic, what I'm saying to you, and yet part of my point to you is that if you're in the Bible application camp that overgeneralizes these things, you probably don't realize just how often you're like other people. You know, if you were to go buy yourself a brand new Bible and get out a highlighter and highlight every passage in it in a different color, okay, more, you're going to need more than one highlighter, right? <laughs> highlight every passage and then go make check marks in the margin. How many things are you applying? And then write in your tiny little letters uh, just how, many, how you are applying each thing. Uh, if you were to do that, you'd realize this is really quite a silly paradigm that not everything does need to be applied. And of course, you're going to make these decisions at your own risk, which I think is a very good thing. I think God has put us in this world for us to have to face evil and uncertainty and difficulty and temptations and uh, pain and suffering. And I think he has a plan for that. Uh, of course, I've already told you before, my view of it is that this is something of an audition for who gets to go on to the next world, that God is looking for those who face it the way he wanted it faced, and then he invites them to live eternally in that heavenly Jerusalem, that holy city. That's my view of it, and we'll certainly look into that in the future, but there's about a bajillion things between now and then. So uh, anyway... How do you apply that? Or do you just skip it? And if you skip it, uh, you really need to admit that to yourselves. Oh, you got me there, bro. We, we don't do this one. Or, or any of these. Because then when you start wagging a finger that people need to make application uh, on everything they read, th then you could maybe realize, okay, that is an overgeneralization. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Uh, and I'll stop right there. Well, first of all, is this the case in your church? Now, perhaps Paul is speaking hyperbolically when he says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. It could be that he did not mean every single member of your congregation walks in with something to share. Uh, that's the way we would tend to read this in our modern American sense of literalism. Is that the way they meant it in that generation when they use these kinds of terms? I don't know. And so I will not insist either way because I just don't know. However, uh, here's a question. <laughs> In your own congregation, is it even true that half the people walk in with something to share? Or even a quarter of the people walk in with something to share? I doubt that very much. Uh, it has become a spectator sport, somewhat American church has. And it's, it's not just in church, it's our culture. Uh, I'll introduce you to the 1990 rule of the internet, which is just an observation for how people tend to behave uh, frequently in an online community. And it goes something like this. Uh, the numbers are one, and then the number nine, and the number 90. It says that 1% uh, in a group will produce the content, 9% will interact with the content, and the other 90% are lurkers. 
And so they're, they're never going to say a thing hardly. And I think that this is generally true. It's a useful rule, even if the numbers might vary by a few points here and there. Well, I think that's what people in our culture are like a great deal. Isn't it interesting that Paul seems to be describing something different here? It looks like they were just raring to go when they got together and they all had things they wanted to share. Uh, not only uh, songs and some lesson to teach, a revelation. Now that is a, uh, a prophecy from God, uh, a tongue. They're speaking in other languages, real languages, not gobbledygook, uh, or an interpretation of tongues. Uh, so they all had these things uh, ready to go when they showed up. Uh, question, how do you apply this <laughs> when you go to church? Uh, now, obviously, there are a lot of people who still believe that the miracles are in play today. A lot don't. I'm in the latter camp. I don't think they are. Uh, I don't see the proof of it. I do see a lot of gibberish being uh, called tongues, but in the Bible, speaking in tongues was speaking other languages one simply had not learned yet. And it could be understood by people who spoke that language. So that's not what I see going on today. Uh, prophecy, of course, uh, you don't want to play at being a Bible prophet uh, if you're not the real deal, because uh, God told him if the prophet says something doesn't come true, you stone him. To death, that is. Not a good thing to be doing. This is not a party game. And yet even today, a lot of people do this. Well, I feel the Lord's leading us to uh, do such and such. Really? How do you know this? Well, God's put it on my heart. Oh, okay. A direct heavenly intervention into your heart. Yep. Okay, so that makes you a prophet, right? You're telling us what God wants us to do. Well, I wouldn't say that, bro. Well, you kind of did already. <laughs> you told us God put this message on your heart. Now you've opened your mouth to share it with us. Uh, you claim to be speaking for God, do you not? Well, you know... I mean, I wouldn't put it that way. Well, why not? That's what you're doing. Well, okay, you take it however you want, bro. Right? It's just silly. You're claiming to be a prophet. So uh, what do you do with this passage if your congregation is not like this? Do you say, well, bros uh, and sisters, I guess we have to uh, learn revelation and tongues and, and hymns and lessons and stuff. Is that what you do? Or do you, uh, are you in the camp that already says, oh, we have all that stuff already, when uh, really I don't think you do? He goes on, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Uh, question, if you have a congregation that believes in tongues, do you do it in orderly fashion like this, and are you sure that there's someone there to interpret it? And this, by the way, this interpretation was a, also a spiritual gift to be able to do that. In other words, somebody could be speaking Japanese and you not knowing the language, but having the gift of interpretation could interpret it accurately. Uh, he goes on, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. See, there you go. Are you doing this? I'll let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, how often does this happen? Um, you consider your preacher a prophet. If you're like a lot of churches, you kind of do. You might not say that, but it shows in the way you talk about it. For example, uh, Brother Larry gets up in the pulpit and he says, well, let's begin with a prayer. And everybody bows their head and he says, oh, Lord, I pray that you'll give me the words today to speak this message boldly or something like this. Or perhaps somebody prays this prayer on his behalf before he comes up for the sermon. Well, you're asking for God to make words come out of this man's mouth, right? And so uh, if that is indeed a prophet, it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And so here's my question. How do you apply this? When your preacher is preaching and somebody in the congregation knows better, do they stand up and say, excuse me, I have something to say. And then the preacher says, oh, okay, well, let me be silent. Is this how that works? Are you really applying this? Or do you say, oh, well, no, our preacher's not a prophet and neither uh, would be the one uh, standing up. Well, okay, what's your preacher doing up front if he's not a prophet? Have we got into some other mode? And maybe we have. I, I kind of think we have. But have you wrestled with this? Have you made a decision as to what time it is? Right? These are very difficult things. And, and my point in all this is to walk you through things that you probably haven't applied as well as you think you have and to point out to you that you have still a lot of work yet to do if you believe that the goal of Bible study in every single case is some sort of life application, especially a life-changing application like the one guy said. So he goes on, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject Prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's funny. I hear a lot of guys preaching who, are, you know, as my father-in-law would have said, a raring and a snorting. They're just going at it up there like, uh, you know, God's got them all fired up to go. But they're not, um, it, it's not, seeming like their spirit is subject to their own control, like they could stop if they were interrupted. In fact, if you did interrupt them, uh, pardon me, brother, on a point of fact, you just said such and such, but uh, the scripture here says to the contrary. Uh, is he used to being uh, disrupted, interrupted, corrected? How would he handle that? I, I have not seen this well applied in congregations very often. Uh, and of course, I don't believe that the prophecy, the gift of prophecy is still in play today. So I would look at this passage and say, well, this is not directly relevant. Uh, if people want to get together today and have some manner of, you know, congregational meeting, okay, uh, is it going to be done by these rules? Well, how can you if you don't have prophets and tongue speakers and, and uh, such. So what do you do? Well, you pick and choose, right? You say, well, uh, we, okay, we, it says hymn. We are going to have a hymn. And yeah, there's going to be a lesson. Okay, but not a revelation or tongues or interpretation or prophecy. Well, right. 
Uh, okay, so you're picking and choosing. Is that reasonable? Well, maybe it is. Is it unreasonable? Well, I don't think so. But again, the point here is that if we're going to point a finger at somebody and say this thing about application, well, you had to make some judgment calls, right? This is not an open and shut case. It's not a slam dunk. I'm sure I just mixed metaphors, but that's okay. You can handle more than one at a time. Uh, going on, 1 Corinthians 16. This is one I've talked about frequently, but I'll read it to you again. Uh, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I just directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And my question, how are you going to apply that? Are you going to start saving up money so that when Paul comes to your congregation, he can send it off to Jerusalem? Well, the fairly obvious thing is that Paul is no longer on the planet, it would seem, so this is not possible. So I hope you understand uh, you know, the point here. Of course, a lot of people say, well, we want to, we, we love this passage. We want to play at this anyway. <laughs> and so they turn this into their regular Sunday collection that goes into the treasury of their local church corporation, whether it's a 501c3 uh, tax exempt thing or, or whether they haven't filed that or not. And they just pretend that this is about that. Well, this is so not about that. And yet, well, the passage is so very useful, bro, right? We're going to use it anyway. Well, okay, so there's a, a fine example of a bad application of a passage. You, If you want to prove your weekly contribution is a thing that God wants people to do, well, you can't prove that from this because this isn't about that, you see. And so there's a ton of bad Bible work like this that happens. It's just constant, one thing after another. And I'll tell you, some of this stuff is hard. Like, especially, I'm going to back up here. Here's a hard one that I hope you really give some, some, um, some thought to. This is back 1 Corinthians 14 about the women speaking. Notice this. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, you, you cannot say, well, this is just some local, you know, cultural thing in Corinth. No. He says, as in all the churches, in fact, several of his other directions, he said similar things. I teach this everywhere in every church, right? So you can't get out of it that way. But let me tell you why, why I struggle with this passage. Uh, well, I guess there's a few reasons. One is I know many women who have worthy things to say. So it doesn't seem that they're disqualified by nature of being women uh, to have something worthy to say. But uh, it's more than just that. I find the passage about that in Christ there is neither male nor female. And I'll go look that up right now. Okay, I went and looked up the passage. I had not written it down. 
And this is from Galatians chapter 3. And Paul is writing about the various people who make up the church. And, you know, he's always concerned about unity and such. But he says, um, oh, where shall I jump in? Uh, verse 25. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian for Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so this and, and perhaps other passages come to mind on this question of women speaking in church. If there is neither male nor female, then how should that be applied to what Paul said in the other place? And let me remind you that Paul wrote both books, Galatians and Corinthians. So you can't uh, do as some do and pit them, pit them against each other. Well, that was Paul, but, uh, you know, Jesus, I mean, Peter was a real apostle of Jesus, and he said, right, they try to do this, or they pit Paul against Jesus often, simply because Paul is saying things by the Holy Spirit that Jesus knew would get said later and did not say on his first visit. Uh, but anyway, what are you going to do with this? Well, there's neither male nor female, but definitely don't let the female speak in church. Well, that's a really good question. And I still don't know what to make of that. And I suppose in a previous time in my life, I would have been embarrassed not to know. And so I would have just avoided the topic. But now I don't mind saying, look, I don't know this or I'm still working on that. Uh, I still don't understand this. Uh, but again, uh, doesn't this just underline the whole topic of making applications? Obviously, your church already has a policy. Either the women speak or they don't speak, right? Well, I hope you could see on either way that somebody could have uh, some manner of reasonable position. Uh, but you'd almost have to come and say, well, Paul wrote this to the Galatians. It must have been after the thing he said <laughs> to the Corinthians. He must have changed his mind or the times must have changed. Maybe the first thing was some temporary thing like whatever crisis was affecting uh, the wisdom of marriage. Uh, and, you know, and how are you going to settle on any of these? Well, there you go. Swim at your own risk. Now, I'm not done uh, with this. I'm not telling you, oh, I've thrown up my arms and I, I'm sure I'll never understand this. Um, but I do know that you have a flagrant, flat-out, explicit statement against the women speaking in the one place. And here you have more a generalized thing, which I totally understand could be about something else. If you had stopped Paul right here, right after he wrote this verse and said, now, wait a minute, didn't you say to the Corinthians, whether before this or after, I don't know which letter was written first, didn't you say or aren't you going to say to the Corinthians that the women should be silent and then aren't you going to say elsewhere that a woman should have no authority over a man and not permitted to teach a man? Hmm. And so, you know, what what do you say, Paul? What, which is it, right? And then, of course, Paul could say, ah, well, look, I, when I'm saying this here, I have no intention of meaning about that other thing. 
this could be a matter of context. And so um, this is what I'm telling you now. This is why I'm sharing this, that these things are difficult. And yet look at the rush to application. Somebody might read that other passage, uh, the one from 1 Corinthians about the women not speaking in the churches, and they say, all right, brothers and sisters, so we had better make an application here. It'll be life-changing. <laughs> and so women aren't to speak anymore in the church, period. You know, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, bang, bang, bang on the pulpit. Uh, well, okay. So, and asking questions, that's ruled out. Okay. What about when the fellowship, when the, the, the quote service, I don't know how we got to calling this a, a church service or a worship service. Uh, that idea is not in the Bible at all. But when the service is over, can the women talk to them or do they have to walk out quietly? And, you know, <laughs> so uh, these things really have to be thought through. Of course, this challenges a lot of people's view of the Bible. Oh, bro, uh, the Bible, you know, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And so there you go. There it is all in between those covers. And uh, that's it right there. That's all you need. Well, can the women speak in the fellowship afterwards? Well, bro, don't ask that. I mean, it's it's all in there while well, I'm asking it. Well, it's just all in there. Go read the Bible. You know, smile at you and pat you on the shoulder. Like, well, I read it a bunch of times with this question in mind. Didn't find the answer, right? And so um, a lot of people simply want to foolishly oversimplify, overgeneralize, and pretend like they've got this complete answer book that's unabridged. Uh, but that's just not the case. If you're a serious student, you know these things. So what are you going to do? You know, one person says, um, hey, the stuff that Jesus told people in the Bible, he meant it, and it happened. And uh, another person says, well, are you saying we should read only for history then and not for application? Well, this is difficult to answer with an emoji on Facebook. Because uh, that's like the question of the century. What we do with it, how we understand it, requires a lot of wisdom. And on this point, let's talk about some generalisms, right? What about the passage, uh, what does he require of you, O man? But, to, oh, I can't even quote this one exactly, but to walk humbly. Uh, to love justice and mercy and to walk humbly with your God, uh, whatever the exact words are. You probably know what passage I'm talking about. And if I had more time, I'd have already looked that one up. <laughs> but you get the point. This passage, can you make application from that? Well, it certainly seems to be a general, uh, general statement from God in the first place or from the prophet. He's not naming a specific person that God requires this of, it seems to be about mankind in general. Can we apply that today? Can we decide, okay, I want to love justice and mercy and to walk humbly uh, before God? Well, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. In fact, you'd be a better person trying to do that than not trying to do that. How would this not please God? Oh, believe me, somebody will find a way. Like, here, let me make one up. Uh, bro, you're trying to love... Uh, justice and mercy and you're trying to walk humbly before God. Well, that's crazy. That's like some twisted satanic thing. Nobody's good. We're all 
you know, like dirt and worms and stuff and garbage. And we're no good. And that's arrogant to think you are good and that you could possibly love justice and mercy and walk humbly before God. Right? Somebody will take it and twist it into something that God would just, I don't know, what, what would God do? Scratch his head? Uh, slap him? I don't know. But um, when you read a passage like that, can you learn from it? Uh, here's a question. When you read about Judas denying Jesus, what's your application of that passage? Oh, I should go deny Jesus too. <laughs> See, be careful. That maybe you could learn in principle, mm, don't want to be like Judas, right? Is there something you should go do then? For example, you could get really creative and you could say, well, Judas had control of the purse for Jesus' little ministry on his very small team of apostles. And so hmm, I'm going to apply this passage. I am the treasurer for my local church corporation. I'm going to go resign immediately because I don't want to be like Judas in charge of the money. Right? I mean, you could do some kind of crazy junk like that. And so it just tends to be this really pick whatever you want kind of um, position. Oh, I'm going to do this. Well, why is that, bro? Oh, I'm applying a Bible passage. Well, okay. And so are you being wise about it? Do you know what the passage is about and all this? That's that's the theme here. That's why we're going through all this. So um, I think that's all I have in my notes for today. I'll do one quick uh, check while I'm just talking here randomly. But, um, you know, what's the point of all this? Application is often a blank check for doing whatever you want or whatever your leader wants. It's a terrible substitute for thinking. And now let me be really clear to explain exactly what I mean here. Do I mean that, oh, people who apply the Bible are not thinking? Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you've been rushed to application, have you got the application that God himself wants you to have? Question. How should you apply the Hosea verse about, um, you know, love, justice, and mercy, and walk humbly? Uh, how should you apply that? Is there only one way to apply that? Or is this the kind of thing that you apply every day of your life, pretty much in everything you do? But suppose a preacher sermonizing, as some preachers tend to do, uh, not all, but some, he might seize upon that passage to get people to... Uh, Let's see. Uh, love mercy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Love mercy. So, uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, the application of this passage is that we're about to start uh, sponsoring the um, the um, orphanage across town, uh, which is such a merciful operation of us. And so you should all uh, give $100 a month to the orphanage uh, because... That's how you apply this passage. Hopefully your preacher wouldn't do that, but I know that some do. Things like this. So they pick an application that's really just trying to manipulate the people to do whatever the preacher wants or the elders or whomever want. But is this really why this passage is in the Bible? 
And when you teach that passage, have you thought through the thing and really reflected on it and uh, studied it out? You remember that Psalm 111, verse 2, a great are the works of the Lord, a studied by all who delight in them. So here's a question. When you study the Bible, uh, of course, the one guy says, oh, it's all about application. That's the whole goal of all Bible study. Mm, okay. Well, what about delighting in the Lord? Man, God is so fascinating. I, I just got to know more about this. When he did this thing or when he said that, what did this mean? What did he have in mind? Was this is this somehow alluded to earlier in the scriptures or is there some foundation for this that he's referring back to? I got to know. I got to go look that up, right? Uh, this is the kind of stuff, and I'm not saying instead of application, I'm saying that this is the kind of stuff that God expects godly people to do, to go dig in and find stuff out. And yet, if you listen to some of the application crowd, not all of them, mind you, but if you listen to some of them, you would think, well, that stuff's unspiritual. Bro, what are you doing studying out all 600 and something references to Sheol in the Bible? How are you going to apply that, bro? That's crazy. You need to, <laughs> you need to go you know, do whatever thing we just told you in the last sermon instead. Well, look, if you're going to be a Bible scholar, you're going to have to do the grunt work of getting down into the nitty-gritty and um, find out how many times such and such word is used and what all it meant and what are the differences and where is it alluded to elsewhere and so forth. If you really want to understand it, that's what it's going to take. And so I think, unfortunately, that this idea of application, it's a lot like, well, I'm a, pick a word, I'm a conservative. Uh, okay. Like, I'm a Bible applicator, right? Or applicationist, whatever word you might use. I'm a conservative. Okay, well, what does that mean to you? Well, it means what it always means. Oh, really? Well, why don't you just humor me and tell me what it means? Well, you know, um, you hear the guys on the radio in the afternoon. That's what I'm like. I'm one of them. I'm like, okay, so do you support uh, frequent wars and regime-changing wars aimed at converting the world economy over to a U.S.-based, dollar-based economy where our people control everything. Well, why would you ask me that? Well, a lot of cons people who call themselves conservatives are for that very thing. Well, I don't know about that, bro. I mean, that doesn't sound good the way you put it. Well, no, I don't think it's good either. <laughs> so, uh, so I would hesitate to call myself a conservative if it meant that I'm a warmonger like that, right? Now, to be fair, there are a lot of uh, liberals who are warmongers too. So please don't think I'm taking a side here on this because I'm not. I don't belong to either uh, Norton or any political party. Uh, so, uh, but I hope you get my point here that we can say this or that, oh yeah, we apply this and just be doing some shoddy work with that. And so is that the question, is that what God had in mind for us? Did God want us to be inconsistent in our application of things? Did he want us to be hypocritical? Oh, bro, you need to apply that scripture. Okay. And you don't need to have a widow's list. You see, of course, the, now the, the guy on the other side of the conversation, the one who made the last remark, you don't need to have a widow's list. 
That's the tu quoque uh, fallacy. It's the you too. Oh yeah, you too. <laughs> you know, you need to do the same thing too. So it's in that that little argument that I just showed there, my little skit, as it were. Uh, both sides are having fallacious uh, positions in that. And so um, I think this can become sort of a religious doublespeak for us that doesn't really end up meaning so much because you pick and choose what you want to apply. Well, that's just cheating. Uh, however, I don't mean to make light of this as if, well, bro, it should just be easy. I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. So, you know, question, how are you going to have church today when you don't have apostles who can answer your church's questions? The example of the first century church, they turn to the apostles, ask about things, they get answers, they put them into practice. Great. Who are you going to do that to? You know, you're wondering about your teen ministry, an example I use frequently because it's just not to be found in the Bible, yet it's a very common practice today. Well, who are you going to ask about that? How are you going to do that? Well, we're just doing our best to apply the Scriptures, bro. Well, okay, apply the Scriptures means whatever you want it to mean because what you're going to have to tell me is that, well, in our teen ministry, we apply Scriptures that we get generally here and there. Yeah... Did you apply the one about the body is a unit made up of many parts and you don't split it apart and you can't say we don't need you? Because if all the adults show up for that Sunday afternoon youth meeting, do you let them in or do you send them home? You know, if they wanted to come, and I realize they probably don't, but if they did, would you let them in? Or would you say, well, you know, bro, uh, this is a meeting's really just for the teens, you know, right? And so I think it's really good to take a good look at ourselves and say, okay, really? How are we doing with this application business? Because I find just a ton of problems with it. And, uh, you know, I'm, one group I've been associated with in the past, they would frequently say things like, well, there's no example of such and such in the New Testament. Therefore, we're not going to do that either. Well, okay. I mean, that kind of sounds good, but then I look and I see, well, you've got hymnals and they didn't have hymnals. Well, they had scrolls. Okay, fine. Uh, you have a microphone. Did they have a microphone? Well, they, uh, you know, uh, they would just sing loud so they could be heard. Oh, well, why don't you do that? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, really, we just found another way to do it. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, uh, you build church buildings. They didn't do that. Well, but, you know, uh, God provided them places to meet. Oh, why doesn't God provide you a place to meet? Well, he did. We built this building. Yeah, and you got a mortgage for it, and you spent who knows how much money on this, and then you complain you can't hire enough staff, right? <laughs> so... Uh, really, are you really putting into place, you know, and then another, well, that church over there, that's unbiblical, them having those instruments in their worship service. Oh, well, okay. Uh, you say unbiblical, you mean you can't find an example of it in the Bible. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, fine. 
Uh, and yet you mentioned the very word worship service in the same sentence. Uh, could you please give me book, chapter, and verse for worship service? Well, bro, it doesn't matter what you call it. I mean, it's just an expedient kind of thing, right? Oh, okay. So you demand that they follow the example where there's no um, mention of musical instruments, but you don't have to follow the example where there's no mention of worship service. You see? So, look, I'm not saying that people are in this to be jerks or to be hypocritical, but as I think I've mentioned before, um, a little saying that just occurred to me a couple of months ago, and I think it's a keeper, the road to hypocrisy is a short one. <laughs> uh, is it really any different from the New Year's resolution? All right, I'm going to walk two hours every day, and that'll take care of my weight problem. Well, okay, bro, it's been three days. How's that going? Well, I didn't walk two hours the first day because, you know, it was New Year's Day. Um, and, uh, you know, we needed a day to relax. Okay, and what about yesterday? Well, I had a lot to do to get ready for the upcoming year. And, you know, school starts back in a couple of days. Uh-huh. Okay, right. And so, uh, yet, you can have your checkered um, track record there and then go point to your neighbor who's also overweight and say, you know, bro, you really need to start walking every day. Right? And so... You're trying to be the teacher when you haven't learned the material yet yourself. And that is so easy to do in uh, so many different kinds of ways because the real, um, where the rubber meets the road and life on this earth is in making ourselves do what we know we ought to do, right? So I hope that this is useful, um, a bit of an eye-opener, probably sobering, who knows, maybe you want to fight over this or that topic that I brought up. Maybe you think that I'm hiding or dodging because of the women speaking issue and all that. Look, if I had to come down on that issue right now, I would say, well, if you're going to have a church, and what does that mean? Well, that's a whole ball of wax. In fact, I don't even know what a ball of wax is, really. I mean, why do people say that? But anyway, you know what I mean. I, I normally say can of worms, right? What is the church? Ecclesia, that word in the Greek. Hmm. Okay. But if you're going to have that, well, if you push me on it, I'd say, well, look, how could I in good conscience allow women to be speaking, at least in the sense of teaching, preaching, when I have these very direct statements from Paul and no indication that this was ever going to change in the future? I also have Paul teaching about speaking in tongues and such, but I have an indication from him on that, that, you know, uh, when perfection comes, the imperfect will pass away. This is 1 Corinthians 13. So there, there's a good reason to think, yeah, maybe this is the time when there's no more speaking in tongues, no more prophecy and so forth. You see where I'm going? But does Paul ever say, and there will come a day when there shall be no more male nor female uh, in the church culture. There'll be no further distinction. Of course, now that's very difficult to imagine that. Uh, does this, is he pointing to a time, if he ever were to say such a thing, would he be pointing to a time in which there would be no further physiological differences between males and females, but we would have this sexless uh, race of beings? Is that what he's talking about? And, and women would no longer have babies and fathers, uh, men would no longer father babies. Is that what he's talking about? 
Uh, well, he never said any such thing. The weak could assume that, but on what grounds? It would be groundless. So these things can be very difficult, and this is why, uh, you know, think of the, the title of this podcast, Rethinking the Bible. Uh, of course, rethinking is a bit of a misnomer uh, for, for those of us who don't ever think about it in the first place. We've never thought about it before. Uh, rethinking then is not possible, right? So uh, we can have fun picking on the name if we like. But that is what I wanted to talk about today. I know this just broaches the subject. I hope this is painful and uncomfortable uh, as it should be because it means you're trying to do the mental work needed to get your hands around it. And uh, I do hope also that this dispels the notion, well, it's just simple, bro. You just apply it, you're right. And well, uh, there's, I certainly showed you enough examples that ought to give one pause at repeating a rule like that again, that the, you know, the end of all good Bible study is application. Well, what kind of application, in what way, to what ends am I putting aside other things that should be done just because of a favorite pet project here that I want done? Is that why I'm talking about application? You know, so there's lots to think about. And uh, I've enjoyed talking through this. I hope you found it useful. Please write me a line. Let me know. Also, if you would, please take note that on the website at RethinkingTheBible.com, there is in that right-hand uh, column what we call widgets. Uh, you'll see a, a link for PayPal. Uh, it costs uh, at least $750 a year to, to do this. And we're in our poor season now, so we don't have uh, tons of money piled up to support um, the hosting fees and all that. If you would uh, care to donate, that would certainly be useful to us and help keep the podcast on the air and help keep it um, going and uh, moving forward. We would really like to get into some regular publication schedule, and yet we consider ourselves in this first year to be a bit of a startup and um, just trying to learn how to manage things. So Anyway, doing my best and uh, trying not to complain too much about this day job habit that I have, which quite gets in the way of things I think are more useful, but money is always a necessity in this world, even if it's not a priority. So if you can help out with that, we sure would appreciate that. And I want to see what I can do about getting Kay and James back on for another family discussion episode here shortly. Also, to let you know, I uh, did mention in the previous episode about an article I'd written about uh, why exaggeration is lying. And I do want to read that. I believe in the very next uh, episode, I will read that and another article that I'd written uh, some years back about how we love our labels. And so it's about exaggerating and about labels. And you'll find this is actually quite common because you're calling things uh, by names that are not uh, exactly uh, accurate in every respect and how this is a moral problem that we have. So I'll be reading those um, soon, probably put them together in the one podcast and uh, one episode that is, and to uh, talk about them. The first one doesn't have much Bible um, citation in it, yet it the conversation is all about Bible things. And then the second one has lots of Bible passages with it. So that'll be coming up soon, and that'll be episode 28, I believe. And uh, if things go as planned, it will be called why exaggeration is lying, and we love our labels. So uh, 
That's it for now. Thanks for joining in. Thank you.